Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Former President Trump accused of rape in court today. What E. Jean Carroll says happened in that department store dressing room in 1996. She plans to testify tomorrow. Why is Donald Trump not expected to? Plus, Tucker Carlson's former producer reveals that she has many audio recordings from her time at Fox. I still have, I have several recordings that I'm still going through that we've recovered from all of the phones. There are 90 that we have. So we will discuss the vile behavior that Grossberg says was part of a daily life at Fox and why Fox management allows their hosts to create that toxic workplace. All right, the panel is here with me. They're raring to go. We have former Senate candidate Joe Pinion, Paula Reed, CNN senior legal affairs correspondent, Natasha Alfred, host of The Grio Weekly, and Mo Shwanunu, host of the Mo News podcast. But let's begin with the E. Jean Carroll case. The trial started today in New York, where attorneys laid out their case that Donald Trump raped Carroll in a department store dressing room in the spring of 1996. The judge is allowing Carol to call two other women as witnesses to show Trump's pattern of alleged sexual assault. Carol's attorney said in court today, quote, three women, one clear pattern, pounce, kiss, grab, grope, don't wait. When you're a star, you can do anything you want. And when they speak up about what happened, attack, humiliate them, call them liars and call them too ugly to assault, end quote. Trump's attorney fired back saying, quote, she is abusing the system by advancing a false claim of rape for money, for political reasons and for status. And in doing so, she's really minimizing the true rape victims. Okay, let's get to our panel. Um, Paula, great to have you here with us tonight. So um, E. Jean Carroll is expected to testify tomorrow. Is Donald Trump expected to testify or be in the courtroom? He's, it's unlikely that we're going to see him. Today, his own attorney was asked, and he couldn't really give a straight answer to the judge. But look, I can tell you, talking to his attorneys in other cases, in criminal cases, they do not want to see the former president anywhere near that witness stand. They are extremely concerned about any other issues that could come up in any kind of testimony. So they do not want him there. I mean, look, even the former attorney general, Bill Barr, said, look, there's, there's no need for him to testify in this case. And so I, at this point, do not expect to see him testify. And because this is a civil case, he's not required to really be there at all. Joe, one of his defenses that he's repeated over and over that he seems to think is a defense is she's not my type. Not I'm not a rapist. She's not my type. He seems to be more interested in letting his followers know that a 70-something-year-old woman now is, is not appealing to him rather than defending himself against gross sexual misconduct. 
Well, look, I, look I'm not going to dignify the comment from the former president. I think at the end of the day, uh, there is that old adage that no press is bad press. I think ask any person who's ever been accused of rape or had to suffer the indignity of sexual assault, I would say, I beg to differ. So uh, it's certainly he's not going to come out stronger because of this. Uh, we've heard here uh, some of the facts. Uh, this is going to be adjudicated in the court. It is a civil case. Uh, the president is unlikely to show up. But I do think, again, some of the themes that we will hear uh, that it is, was it the fall of 1995? Was it the spring of 1996? The allegations, they are quite graphic. They are horrifying. They shock the conscience. And as such, people would wonder um, the lack of specificity around the date. So I think, again, all being told, uh, it's a sad day for the country in many ways as it relates to the fact that time and time again, we seem to have so many women, uh, President Trump aside, who feel as if years after the fact, they still can't get justice for what they think has uh, or, or what they know has happened to them. Yes. In fact, it's the Adult Survivors Act that's allowing that's right. this. So as you know, New York passed this law and there's now this window where women who say that they're past the statute of limitations in terms of a sexual assault or a rape, they can now bring these charges. But it's interesting, Natasha, you, you understand, as we all do, um, it's hard to do this two decades later, though the judge is allowing her to bring in two witnesses who were friends of hers mm-hmm. who she confided to at the time. That's right. When you hear E. Jean Carroll's story, it does sound like something that could have happened. The idea that she went and she told two friends right away afterwards that she was discouraged and she was told, you will be outlawed, your name will be, you know, dragged through the mud, you do not want this fight. That's something that a lot of women can relate to. So I think... The, the, the fact that those two friends are willing to testify is really powerful. Also, her uh, psychologist, the therapist that she spoke to at the time, verified what she said, confirmed that she reported uh, that experience that she went through. So I, I think that, you know, the time that's passed, there are people who understand why that time passed and why it would still hurt all of these years later. Mosh, and then there's the Access Hollywood tape. And they're going to allow that to be played. There was a question about whether or not the judge would allow that. And so what will that do? I mean, first of all, is there a juror in America who hasn't heard it? And second, what do you think that will tell the jury or inform them of? Well, what's interesting is they went through the jury pool, right? Uh, There were 40 potential jurors, and they asked several questions, and a bunch of them raised their hands over the course of the day, and they came up with these nine. These nine will have to make the decision. What's interesting about the Access Hollywood tape is they're clearly going to try to show a pattern here. Right? They're going to try to make up for the lack of specificity in her case, in terms of her memory, with a, this is the way the former president conducts himself. And we have several women who can speak to that. And so it remains to be seen what happens there. And of course, this is a civil case. So this is preponderance of the evidence, right? Is this more likely than not? Is there a 50.1% chance this could, could have happened? And that's ultimately what the jury has to decide. And then there's a whole court of public opinion that he has to deal with, which is a whole separate conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, Paul, in addition to her friends who she told, she says, at the time, there are also two other women, not friends with E. Jean Carroll, who will testify to similar behavior basically in public. One of them was on a plane and said that he groped her. Exactly. This is part of the pattern that most just referenced, that this is their whole theory of the case. We don't have any eyewitnesses, right? We don't have any DNA evidence that we're going to use here. So we're trying to establish this pattern, not only through the contemporaneous account of our friends, but also also through other women who have experienced the same thing. And when they talk about, you know, grab, grope, kiss, don't stop, then cue the Access Hollywood tape. So yes, all of this is part of establishing a pattern. Yeah, I mean, you say there's no DNA evidence and that would stand to reason because it was a long time ago. Though, I mean, it's possible if E. Jean Carroll was, you know, as she has said, she's very upset about it. It, it, 
I just wonder if there could ever be a surprise in this case and there could be something. It's one thing I've learned from covering former President Trump for nearly a decade. There's always a chance of a surprise. So nothing can be ruled out. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> that is also very good. So I sat down with E. Jean Carroll in uh, 2019 when she was just she had just gone public with this. She hadn't talked about it publicly. Um, and she was still, I think, I mean, my impression was that she was still grappling with what had happened to her. But here is that moment. He went like this. I preceded him into the dressing room. The minute he closed that door, I was banged up against the wall. He slammed you against the wall. Yeah, I hit my head really hard. Boom. And you point out and that he's a tall, big person, and six, he pinned three. you in some way. Well, I'm a tall person, too. I was 6'1 in my heels, and I was a competitive athlete. So, you know, when somebody shows you, the thing is, it shocked me. It, for a moment, I was stunned, right? And then he tried to kiss me. I mean, she went on to talk about what that was like in there. And basically, she, she was honest that she was shocked, so shocked, she was still processing out loud what had happened to her. At that point, she didn't even want to use the word rape. What she described in that interview with me was a rape. But she didn't want to use that word. And what she kept saying was, I want everybody to know I fought back. I fought. I fought as hard as I could. And I, I just thought that that was, I don't know, very poignant that she um, was, she sort of understood that she had, that women, she had other women that she sort of wanted to understand what that moment was like for her. There's a relatability to this, this idea of I do not want to be seen as a victim. Uh, and, and the times have changed, right? The culture has changed. There was a time where you could describe something like that. And again, a person might dismiss what happened to you or downplay what happened to you. The importance of this is accountability. The fact that Donald Trump, there's a certain indignity of saying, I would never find that that woman attractive enough to sleep with her. Um, you know, it is, it's both insulting, but it it's, kind of the way that predators can speak, right? To try to, you know, sort of downplay something that they've done um, when in reality, that is not what rape is about. It's not about necessarily being attracted. It is about power. It is about overtaking. It is about sort of the cruelness of the act. So again, I think this is bigger than Donald Trump. I think a lot of women would see um, a justice in this if if there is enough evidence against it. Such a great point. And it's also, I think we need to say that it's also erroneous that if his defense is she's not attractive enough for me to rape, I mean, which is basically what he is saying, or she's not attractive enough for me to be, to, me to be attracted to, we'll just say that, she was former Miss Indiana University. She was a beauty queen. That oh, is actually his And type. looks like his second wife, by the way. Who which, he mistook her for, I think. Yeah, in, in, in a, a photo, deposition. in his deposition, they showed a photo of E. Jean Carroll, and they said, who is that? He said, oh, that's my wife, referring to Marla Maples. So that's definitely going to come Look, up. That I, was a disastrous episode. I, I think, again, it, it's going to be a horrid scene listening to this woman recount, uh, in her own words, uh, what is clearly a traumatic experience for her, uh, certainly President Trump is entitled to the presumption of innocence. But I do think, again, there is, you know, to Natasha's point, I think those words are troubling. But there is no such thing as, quote-unquote, a perfect victim any more than there is a perfect predator, right? We've seen, uh, whether we're talking about murder cases and domestic violence, whether we're talking about people who've been sexually assaulted, we have seen time and time again that the perfect victim turns out to be lying. We've seen that the problematic victim tends to be the one who's telling the truth. So in the end, uh, this is going to be heard in a court of law. Jurors are going to make 
make a decision. And I think, again, it might come to the president having to testify because if the testimony is so damaging, I think on a multitude of levels, he may have to go in there and say, I did not do this. Here is what happened. And I think in some ways, if he can stay on message, uh, he would benefit tremendously from that. We'll see what happens tomorrow when she testifies in court. Thank you all very much. Now to this, a former Fox News producer says she has audio recordings from her time at the network. 90 of them. Uh Uh-oh. We're going to discuss that next. When I go back and listen to some of those tapes now that I have, I hear the stress in my voice and how depleted I was. Tucker and his executive producer, Justin Wells, who was also fired, really were responsible for breaking me and making my life a living hell. That was Abby Grossberg, a former producer at Fox who worked for Tucker Carlson, speaking out today on what she says was rampant misogyny and anti-Semitic talk behind the scenes of his show. She's also revealed that she has 90 audio recordings from her time at Fox. Fox says that Grossberg's claims are, quote, unmeritorious. We're back with my panel, and joining us is writer and comedian Hari Kondabalu. Hari, great to have you here. Nice to be here. Well, it's fascinating to hear um, everything that she encountered behind the scenes. We don't know yet what's on those 90 tapes. Some of it, it sounds like, are still some recordings of Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. It's not all just behind the scenes at Tucker, but I, I don't know if they'll ever come out, but it's certainly fascinating. But regardless, she tells us what she experienced. So, Mosh, you've worked at a network. You've worked in newsrooms as have I, what they did, I mean, there's a lot of collegial experience at newsrooms. There's funny posters, there's funny things written on the wall. What was going on in Tucker's pod and Tucker's office is in a completely different vein. I haven't worked in a newsroom like that. Um, in terms of what she described. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. uh, that's my point. Is that this is in a, in a completely different category. Yeah. No, they, this is not a newsroom that, that I've experienced or that I've, I've seen. And by the way, I was at, I was at Fox 05 to 09 in D.C., like back in the day. This is pre-Tucker years, et cetera. Um, it's very concerning. Uh, and she talks about it being a traumatizing experience for her to the point where she had to take medical leave for the psychological stress that it created. Let me just, let me interrupt you to, to play what she says. She walks in the first day to Tucker's office yeah. and every single computer screen is um, like a sexualized picture of the House Speaker of the time, Nancy Pelosi. There's also posters up. So let me just play for you on her first day what she, oh yes, what she saw on the first day. I show up first day of work And I know that this is a popular one. It's been widely publicized. There are literally pictures like this big of Nancy Pelosi in a bathing suit in Europe, plastered all over. Um, There was even one on my computer screen for the temporary computer I had to use, and I had to take it down just to work. Um, Within a few days, I was called into Justin Wells' office with Alex McCaskill, who was a senior producer as well, and asked if Maria was having an affair with Kevin McCarthy. It was just, I was shocked. I couldn't even believe it. I was floored. Right, so sexual talk, sexual images, this is all out in the open. They're not hiding it. And it's just the question of, why did Fox management allow this kind of behavior? They know it gets them into trouble. They know they have to do payouts, and yet they're allowing this kind of toxic behavior. What's so interesting about this is, like, it's not that long ago that they dealt with having to fire Roger Ailes, the president of the network, for sexual misconduct, Bill O'Reilly, for sexual misconduct. Uh, they had a whole investigation, et cetera, and it appears that 
there was not a wholesale culture change there, at least based on what she's saying. Natasha, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think culture starts at the top with any organization, right? And we all know that the truth comes out one way or another. So people are going to talk about what they're seeing. They're going to talk about what they're experiencing. And culture is not what you write down as the legal letter of the law. It is the jokes. It is the things that we find mutually funny. So somebody at Fox made made it so that the culture was comfortable with sort of entertaining that level of disrespect. And I'm not surprised based on the way that Fox anchors behave. Mm-hmm. Um, Allison, I'm, I know that you were great <laughs> when you were there, but you know, uh, the, the most popular ones are the most offensive, the most outrageous. And so if you can behave that way and call yourself a journalist, then I think that the culture behind the scenes, I'm not surprised that it matches in terms of outrageousness. All right, your thoughts? I have a two and a half year old child. And if for the last two and a half years, I let him throw things on the wall, yogurt, jam, you know, mix them and do whatever you want. In fact, here are some more substances because it's amusing and I want you to do it. And then two and a half years in, I'm like, I want you to stop. I think it's enough. He's not going to listen to me. He's not going to respect me. And so I think that's where Fox News is at. They created a monster. They want, they want it to stop. They can't make it stop. And so they put him up for adoption. <laughs> I, think, I have a toddler. Yes. So you know I, I think the toddler analogy is fitting somehow, but I think that you, what you're basically alluding to is the drunk with power nature yep. that these yes. um, uber powerful, well, highly paid people develop. And in fact, Abby talks about how the power that she says um, Tucker Carlson was really interested. That was his motivation. Here's what she said. When I got to Tucker, it was different. And as a text that came out revealed my suspicions, um, he was looking for ratings bait purely uh, and was also looking for power. It was a combination of ratings and power and manipulating the audience um, and manipulating also the political system. There was an aspect of I can pick who the House Speaker is. I can pick who the president of the United States is or who the Republican candidate's going to be. And I thought that was really dangerous and didn't want that kind of power. Your thoughts, Joe? Look, uh, I think it's important to note that Fox says these allegations are without merit. There is a trial that is going to occur unless they reach a settlement. The facts are going to be fully disclosed. But do you find it hard to do you find this hard to believe or implausible, given what we now know from what came out in the Dominion lawsuit of what Tucker was saying behind the scenes? Like, are you finding it hard to believe her allegations? I I think I, I think I'm less intrigued by the corporate intrigue. I'm more concerned with the fact that. It appears now every single major news network in the country has had some level of sexual harassment leveled against them from CEOs of uh, CNBC as recent as yesterday uh, to pretty much across the board, you name it. So I think we should have a frank conversation about why it is that women are unsafe in the workplace. And this is whether we're talking about teachers, whether we're talking about nurses or whether we're talking about people who show up to produce the evening news. So I think that's fair, Joe. I I do think that's fair. Nobody's immune, obviously, from um, sexual harassment. But this is in a different league. The, and I'll, let me just give you some examples. The, the open use of the C word uh, for women, which is what they, she says Tucker's staff did, that you, you have to look pretty hard for look, something like I, that I, in I, the office. I, I think to be clear. Everything that she is describing, the most extreme elements of what she's describing, are horrifying. They shouldn't occur in any news place, much less uh, any, any business place, much less a news organization. But at the end of the day, 
This has not been presented in a court of law. There is a legal proceeding that is ongoing. I think, again, we should be reserving of our judgment as these facts come out. She says she has 90 recordings uh, that she herself has not even gone through. Uh, we don't even know if perhaps some of what's on the recordings might actually contravene her own story. So I think at the end of the day, we just take a step back, allow this to play out. But again, what she is describing, yep. let make no mistake about it, is horrifying. No woman should ever have to experience We that. shouldn't jump to anything. We should let things play out. Out. We should kind of re- respect people before we... Okay. That's not what Tucker Carlson would do, though. Well, uh, look, I'm not Tucker Carlson's I attorney. Know, Tucker just... Carlson uh, certainly doesn't need me to defend him. But I think, again, uh, let's dispense with the notion that we don't actually try to figure out what people are going to watch, how we get through A Block without people going to watch the cooking channel. We can have disagreements <laughs> about corporate culture. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not here to talk about Tucker Carlson or the network. I just think... It's an opportunity for us to focus on the fact that yeah. we just finished having one conversation about sexual assault or into another story about a woman yep. in the workplace. So these issues are pervasive in our society, yep. and I think that we should take more time talking about that right. in the kind of aggregate. And I think that I had read that Fox's statement was that um, her, all of her claims are unmeritorious. We, we shall see, because there is a lawsuit that is going to start. Thank you very much. President Biden officially announcing his bid for re-election. So... Are Democratic voters worried about his chances? What are they thinking tonight? My next guest, Frank Luntz, did a focus group, and they're concerned about just one key witness, he says. Frank is here, and he's going to give us the headlines. We'll be with you in a minute, Frank. President Biden officially launched his re-election campaign today, four years to the day since he announced his 2020 campaign. I ran for president four years ago. I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. So what do Democratic voters most want? Well, Frank Luntz just sat down with a focus group of Democrats to find out, and he joins us now. Frank, great to see you. What's the headline? What do they want? They want to beat Donald Trump. Yes, they want to elect uh, uh, Joe Biden. And yes, they approve of the last two years, two and a half years of the administration. But what unites them and unifies them is the desire, the fear of Republicans returning to office. Now, remember that I did the same kind of session three weeks ago asking Republicans what they wanted. Republicans are more in favor of electing their candidates. Democrats are more nervous about what happens if Republicans come back into power. Now, make no mistake, there is no negative about Joe Biden's record. They would like to go further to protect abortion rights. They would like to go further to address the gun issue but they are absolutely satisfied with what President Biden has done up to this point. And yet, what concerns, yet. what concerns them deeply is his age. And they are quite nervous that at some point between now and election day, something could happen and that Joe Biden is not the nominee or that he could lose because of that age issue. And, you know, that's quite a pickle, Frank, because he's not getting any younger. I mean, that's just, it's just a truism. He is how old he is. I wish I were taller, but I'm 5'3". And so what are they to do about that? I mean, do they 
Are they, do they hope somebody runs against him, primaries him? No, they don't. But they would have, if, if it was my, the, the most enjoyable segment that I have, and this is what makes my job so cool, is that we get a chance to ask voters if the president were sitting here behind this camera, behind this computer, and you could say anything to him. The most common comment was, Mr. President, thank you for saving the country. Thank you for bringing us back. But sir, give someone else the chance to take it forward. Let the next generation come up now. Hmm. Obviously, he didn't listen or wouldn't have listened, but that's what they would say to him if they could. Did they say who that person would be and how they feel about, say, the vice president? Uh, she would not be happy uh, with their evaluations. She's still unknown. People are unsure of where she stands. They don't think that she's as impressive. She has let people down over the first two years. They were remarkably favorable towards Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Uh, we showed them some video of the, of the vice president, some video of the governor of California. Uh, we talked about Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, Pete Buttigieg. The candidate that they liked the best is Cory Booker because they like his his appeal to something bigger, to something better. They like his focus on the future and what America could be. What they would like is to have Joe Biden's record with Cory Booker's age and inspirational conversation. Hmm. Well, unless they plan to go into a laboratory, <laughs> I'm not sure how they're gonna how they're gonna get that. But Frank, tell us about these this focus group. Who are they? I mean, are they diehard Democrats? These are uh, Biden voters from 2020. Most of them voted for Biden in 2016. They call themselves core Democrats, moderate, progressive, and everything in between. And they're nationwide, which is the, the, the value of Zoom, of what we're doing right here, right now, that you and I can talk to each other and we're about 200 miles apart. We had the entire country represented from New York to California, from Iowa to Oklahoma, from Florida to Oregon. And by doing that, we get a real feel for the American people. I wanna make one point, Allison. I urge CNN and the other news networks, don't just put the pundits on because you know exactly what they're gonna say. You and I have known each other for a while. You did not know what this conversation was going to lead. Listen to the voice of the people and you won't be surprised. Ignore them and only listen to the pundits. And all you're gonna get is that extreme partisan political rhetoric and that's not where the American people are right now. And in fact, Democrats said that they want a better messenger. They want a better message for their own party. And Republicans would agree with that for their situation as well. Totally agree, which is why I, too, love doing voter panels. I do my pulse of the people. And luckily, the country is big enough for the both of us, Frank, um, you and me, <laughs> to listen to them. So it's always great to have you, Frank. Thanks so much for the insight. We really appreciate you sharing all that. All right, my, it's my pleasure. Good. My, pa my panel is back with me. Um, so, Hari, what, what are Democrats to do about the age issue that they keep bumping up against with Joe Biden? I mean, there, there is nothing to do unless they find another candidate. I mean, the one thing that gives me hope is that, like, Obama wasn't the establishment candidate when, when he ran the first time around. The, everybody was aiming towards Hillary Clinton. And then he, he was this young, charismatic leader that put himself in this position. But there was no incumbent. That is also true. Look, they're not in a good spot. To me, my frustration is they had years to develop younger, more viable candidates. And and they didn't. And part of that is, like what I was saying, like, it's a, it, the establishment 
does not want to change. Like with Obama, that wasn't their that wasn't their guy, and he kind of was this transcendent figure. And we have these figures in the Democratic left, whether it's AOC or, or or all these Justice Democrats. You might think maybe they're not electable, but there isn't even an attempt to cultivate them at a higher level. The fact that they won their seats to begin with means they defied the odds. So mm. isn't that worth investing in? Natasha? Um, My dad's favorite saying is that it is what it is. And that's kind of how I feel about the situation that Democratic voters are in. They recognize that it is what it is, right? At this point, there's the bench is but so deep. Um, They have had these significant legislative accomplishments. You have to think about, you know, the infrastructure bill that passed, the CHIPS Act. It's not as sexy as maybe people would hope, but these are really substantive things. And the video, right? Joe Biden's ad, it's it's entitled Freedom. The first shots you see are January 6th, reminding you that there was someone who at one point wanted to challenge the freedom and the meaning of your vote. Roe versus Wade. I mean, all of these things really resonate. So I think it is what it is. And to Hari's point, they have to actually plan ahead. That's that's all you got. Um, Joe, what did you think about the president's message reminding people, lest they forget, what he was fighting for four years ago. Well, look, I I think, you know, to Natasha's point, she's talking about quotes, two of my favorite quotes, one from Deion Sanders, keep the main thing the main thing. The other one from that man, that that raging Cajun James Carville, uh, that it's the economy stupid. Uh, The main thing was the main thing for Joe Biden. The January 6th happened, that anyone who's opposed to our agenda is opposed to your freedom, uh, that they're going to talk about abortion, they're going to talk effectively about that kind of bellwether red meat stuff for not just Democrats, but also those uh, independents who lean left, particularly in light of President Trump. So that is clearly what they were going to talk about. I think what's striking and what Republicans probably should be harping on is what was not in that video. We weren't talking about the claim that we have the greatest jobs president in the history of this country, which I think is because they recognize that that message is ringing hollow for a lot of Americans who are struggling on a day-to-day basis. The half million Americans who are at least 60 days behind on their car payments. Those types of undeniable realities that what are the politicians and to Frank's points, the pundits want to acknowledge it or not, there's still real pain and suffering in the aftermath of a once-in-a-generational pandemic that no matter your political persuasion left real people with real trouble. So I think that is my perspective, and I think we're going to look at what's going to happen moving forward here. Yeah, I mean, most That video spoke to what Frank just said, which is it spoke to Democrats' greatest fear, right? It begins with January 6th. It's a look back. There are more images of Marjorie Taylor Greene and MAGA than there are about talk about the economy, and talk about accomplishments. And talk, because guess what? We don't want to talk about inflation right now. We're in the White House, right? And so, even though it's gradually coming down. And so, ultimately, this is a core base message. If you're, you know, trying to eventually get independence and trying to get those uh, people motivated in the middle, you're going to need a different message. Because you need to speak to their concerns and their fears. Because their greatest fear is not a repeat of January 6th. At least. And, and so, it's interesting that they've gone with that messaging. Uh, and the question is, what record will he have to run on more than a year from now mm-hmm. in the fall of 20. Well, I also think, yeah. again, people were waiting to see what President Biden was going to say. And I think in many ways, this was trying to circle the wagons, right? Get yeah. behind Joe again, because to your point, right, God forbid something does happen to the president between now and then. There's only one Democrat in the country with the infrastructure to run a national campaign is Gavin Newsom, who's going red state to red state, effectively building a synthetic operation as a break glass in case of emergency for the Democratic Party, whether the Democratic Party wants him or not. 
Friends, thank you. I have to go on to this next one, but I know you guys will be fired up about this as well because we're talking about the Supreme Court. Are the justices living up to the standards that they're supposed to be setting in the Supreme Court? Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch are in the spotlight over financial disclosure issues, and now Chief Justice John Roberts is refusing to testify before Congress about ethics. We'll discuss all of it next. Chief Justice John Roberts releasing a new ethics statement tonight signed by all nine justices amid reports of some questionable business dealings. Let's start with Justice Neil Gorsuch. In 2017, he sold a 40-acre property in Colorado. Gorsuch held a 20% stake in that property and reportedly made between $250,000 to $500,000 on that sale. That property was sold to Brian Duffy, the CEO of prominent law firm Greenberg Trorig. But Gorsuch did not disclose the buyer. CNN found that lawyers for that firm have appeared in numerous cases before the Supreme Court while Gorsuch was on the bench. Then there's Justice Clarence Thomas. He's under fire again because records show that Thomas failed to recuse himself from a 2004 appeal that was tied to the family of that mega donor, that Republican mega donor, his good friend, Harlan Crow. Of course, that's the same GOP megadonor that Thomas sold his childhood home to. He also accepted lavish gifts and very fancy vacations for more than 20 years without disclosing them. We have a lot to discuss here. My panel's back. Mosh, that just doesn't feel right, what they're doing. The fact that they are having these business deals. And in fact, Clarence Thomas had said, I didn't have to disclose it because there was never any business that Harlan Crow did in front of the Supreme Court. Not true. That's not true. His company, there was an architecture firm that Harlan Crow was, I believe, the CEO of, and they did do business in 2004. It's definitely a major optics issue because it's not clear whether anybody broke the law here. And we should separate out the Gorsuch case from the Thomas case. The Gorsuch case, people who look at this say, you know, it, it does not appear that even ethically it, it's ambiguous. The Clarence Thomas situation is, you went through those bullet points there. There's a lot there. The larger issue is, from the founding of this country, we, the Supreme Court has not had a code of ethics, a written code of ethics. Every other f- part of the federal, federal judiciary does. And this is something the Senate has brought up and is asking Roberts about. They attached this written statement today. Dick Durbin saying, the Senate Judiciary Chairman, this is not enough. But the standard that we hold Congress to, every other judge in the federal system to, we do not hold the nine lifetime appointees of the Supreme Court to. Right. Yeah. And so now uh, Chief Justice Roberts says he's not going to testify about ethics. At the, I guess Dick Durbin has asked him to do so. And he says he's not going to. And let me just read why he says that. He says, testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee by the Chief Justice of the United States is exceedingly rare, as one might expect in light of separation of powers, concerns, and the importance of preserving judicial independence. So... That makes sense. I mean, that makes sense to me. But should, is this a kind of different situation where he should do so? No, go ahead. I, I'm just kind of just floored by I mean, we should not have lifelong appointments. There's, there's accountability at every single stage of government. I don't think that the Supreme Court should somehow not have that accountability. I mean, we treat the Supreme Court like it's the Jedi Council. Like, this is just... I don't know if that's an, an accurate analogy. I'm sure people will tweet at me later. But, like... <laughs> We, the idea that you can do anything you want, and like when you were talking about this idea of bad optics, is it bad optics if there's no accountability? 
like they're well, they're seeing it, them do it. It, but it comes at a time where if you look at polling, yeah. the popularity, the trust in the Supreme Court is at a record low. Yes. If you look at Gallup over the last 50 years. So if I'm just Chief Justice Roberts and I'm seeing how the country feels about us and we're deciding all these major cases, I might huddle the troops being yeah, like, but why do, do they do something care? Different? Like, why do they care what people think about them since they have lifelong positions? They're not elected. Like, at that point, it's just about integrity and dignity. But from what we've just heard, there isn't that much of it. So and then what's the worry? I guess that's why you're seeing sort of this resistance, right? If you don't have to answer, answer to somebody, you won't. And in the case of Clarence Thomas, I found it really interesting that at one point he did report a flight with this uh, Republican billionaire friend. He reported it once and then he just never reported it again while other judges reported flights. So if you can choose to opt in or out in terms of transparency, and as you said, no one is watching, why opt in? Joe? Look, I think we are in a modern age where the rules of the quorum with nothing written on paper have broken down. Uh, that we now know for a fact that insider trading in Congress is rampant and pervasive, and we have literally done nothing about it, haven't passed laws to do anything about it. We clearly need a code of ethics for the Supreme Court, the instances of Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas notwithstanding. Certainly, I would agree you have to separate the two. Um, one is in a league of its own. But I do think, again, I, the, the reason why you won't hear more Republicans talking about this in forceful terms is because of the fact that with everything, we have injected politics into what should be the last bastion of our democracy. And as a result, uh, people feel as if, rightfully or wrongfully, that this is just a partisan attempt to try to steal a Supreme Court seat in the 11th hour. Do I agree with that? No, I think ethics ethics have to be in place irrespective of where the consequences are. But I do think, again, the nature of our politics today has led to this place where we can't have a real common sense conversation about this just being... Well, I guess, except that everybody agrees that there needs to be a code of ethics. Tomorrow or tonight, they need to work on a code of ethics and enshrine that. And that can't make up for what's happened over the past two decades, but it could help start a precedent going ahead. And to be clear, if the the chief justice doesn't want to testify, which I agree, it's impossible to have the conversation without politics. Perhaps he should submit a code of ethics to Congress that they are going to abide by and have that codified. That's a great suggestion, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thank you, friends. Coming up, we've got a wild story from Hari about how he completely snubbed Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez before she was elected. And I assume you're going to pour out your soul to us and tell us how your regrets or <laughs> how you feel about this. Hold it. Okay. We'll be right back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Hari Kondabolu is still with me here because he's got some explaining to do about Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Here's a clip from his YouTube special, Vacation Baby, where Hari talks about snubbing AOC when she was running for Congress. The worst thing I've ever done because of my ego (laughs) happened in 2017. All right, I'm on Twitter. I got a direct message from someone I've never met before. Again, 2017, all right? This is how it goes. Hey there. My name is Alexandria, and I'm running an insurgent grassroots campaign for Congress in Queens and the Bronx. The race itself is very exciting. We represent a progressive movement that would lead to the first person of color to represent the district. Your stand-up comedy is amazing, and I know it must resonate with a lot of people. If you'd ever like to collaborate, let me know. My door is open. And I replied, I'm pretty busy right now. (laughs) 
why don't you get back to me next year? She said, definitely. And I said, thanks for doing what you do, Alexis. Three months later, I'm watching CNN. The Democratic primary returns come in. I'm reading a scroll on the bottom of the screen. It says, Alexandria Ocasio. Oh, was that the lady? Oh no, I think that was the lady. Did I ever write back? I never wrote back. Shamelessly, the night she won, I finally wrote back. Oh my God, you did it. I knew you'd win. Hey, if you'd ever like to collaborate sometime. Wow, that is awesome. I, I wish did I- Did she uh... respond the night she won? No. No, mm -hmm. I apparently uh, I was insignificant at that point. Uh -huh. uh, she responded after my special came out. Uh, she responded on Twitter saying that it made for a great story and she forgave me. And then I think The Hill covered it as a story. So it's all worked out. I still feel a great deal of shame. You should. Um, <laughs> you should. Just the part about I'm all I'm kind of busy right now. Uh, How about in a year? You I was making like America laugh. <laughs> And have you two met? No, we have never met. Is she, is she Here she out? is. is she, Bring oh my out God. it. No, just kidding. Um, okay, we'll make that happen. I, oh, We're my God. I, I, there are so many people who are disappointed in me. Friends, family, Now my millions more. Like, yeah, I have a shockingly big ego for someone who's only moderately notable in coastal <laughs> cities or wherever public radio is popular. So It's working yeah. for you. All right, but I really think that we're going to try to plan a meeting. I think that would be oh, great. Oh, my God. Um, all right, great to have you it's on the panel. It's been a pleasure. Thank really you. Really fun. Come back Appreciate soon. It. Thank you. Okay, some, coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories that they're working on for tomorrow. So they're going to share their scoops with us next. Come on in, guys. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here to share their scoops with us. We have Priscilla Alvarez, Matthew Chance, Rahel Solomon, and Shimon Prokufaz. Great to have all of you guys with me tonight. Okay, so let's start with the latest on Americans detained in Russia. CNN's senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance, was at the UN today. And Matthew, you spoke, I understand, to Sergei Lavrov, and you asked him directly about the Americans who were detained. That's right. You don't get many opportunities to confront the Russian foreign minister very often these days. And so I was in New York. I didn't actually know he was coming to New York, and so it was a happy coincidence that he was. And so I got myself to the UN and spoke to him directly about what was the state of the negotiations, how these American citizens were going to be swapped for something here in the United States, somebody here in the United States. Take a listen uh, to that question. Could you give us some details about what contact you may have had with US officials about the fate of US citizens being held in, in Russian jails? Have any contacts been had? Have they been sought? The channel for the discussion of these matters exists. And this is work that is not public in nature. And publicity here will only complicate the process for reasons which are understandable. And there's no need to tell you professionals about why. Hmm. <laughs> so he was shutting you down there. He shut me down. But I did ask him, you know, look, what would you want in return? What would Russia want in return for Evan Gershkovich? That's the and, most and important question, it's, yeah. big, it's a big question because we don't, we don't know the answers to that. And he started talking about how there were 60 Russian citizens who had been um, 
uh, you know, taken under dubious circumstances, he said, and held in American jails. He didn't say 60 for two, but clearly this is the group of Russian citizens um, who he and his colleagues are negotiating for with American, the American counterparts. So, Priscilla, what do we know about is the White, what the White House is doing on all this front? Every time this comes up, the White House is quite clear in saying that it is a priority for them, that they are working to try to obtain the release of these Americans, Paul Whelan, the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter. But it always comes down to what is the exchange. And we have talked here before about the exchange of Brittany Griner and Victor Boot. And that, to some degree, was controversial domestically here in the U.S. because it was a big exchange. And these prisoner swaps, that it's very delicate territory for the Biden administration. But they have certainly said that this is a priority for them. They have also gone so far now to say that they are wrongfully detained within the case of the Wall Street Journal reporter, which essentially gives uh, them a little more oomph when it comes to them saying that the espionage charges against um, uh, this this reporter are unfounded. But it, it's it's a difficult situation because it comes down to what do you exchange? What are you, what comes? Right. What comes but also next? these things just take forever. And like, no matter what happens, these, uh, these people, they spend all this time in these horrific conditions in these jails uh, in Russia. And, you know, it just, it takes time. And the politics of it are always extraordinary. You know, the Victor Boot, when they did that exchange, I mean, there was controversy because people felt that it was an unfair, perhaps, exchange. And then they well, also felt... it wasn't felt, a parallel. Certainly, I mean, a basketball well, player it for wasn't. a notorious... Criminal. But then they were, why, well, why didn't we try to get Paul Whelan also, right? So there was all that controversy. And then you sometimes you wonder, like, how much does the Biden administration right now want to get back into that mix? But the fact is, who else is out there? You know, only the Russians really know. I don't know that we here in the United States publicly know who they right. would want. Well, and that's my question for Matthew, because you've obviously covered Moscow quite a bit for quite some time. Were you surprised to hear Lavrov say that there was this group of 60 Russians that had been detained under dubious circumstances? Because even last night on the program, as we were all talking about it, we couldn't think of a Russian, a prominent, a high-profile right. Russian that was in American custody that would even perhaps be considered for something like this. That, that, that's why I asked him the question, yeah. because I've been asked numerous times, you know, what, what do the Russians want uh, to, to return these Americans back, back home? I don't really have a good answer, so but now you, at least I've got that. But, but, I mean, the big problem for Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter, and Paul Whelan, is that the biggest bargaining chip the Americans had, Victor Boot, has already been exchanged. Right. And as you say, there's no one else. But there are these 60 people now. So but look, the, these are sometimes people that maybe are not making the news. You know, the U.S. government spends years, months investigating potential Russian spies or Russian spies here in the United States, and then they arrest them, and maybe it doesn't make news. But for the Russians, they are big figures, and they are people that they want back. So maybe it's something, that kind of a situation. But, but these 60 can't be all spies. Right. Well, these people are going to be, you know, minor criminals. Yeah. People have done credit card fraud or, you know, some, some other kind of... You know, felony. Or- I mean, if they're minor criminals, maybe the um, administration, the Biden administration is willing to hand them over. No, yeah, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. And, and I certainly think that Paul Whelan's family and Evan Gershkich's family yeah. would, would, but, would consider but, that to be a pretty it, fair swap. It's dangerous territory, right? Because then we get into the practice of prisoner swaps on a regular basis. And it puts, I mean, I mean you can probably speak to this the best. It can put American citizens at risk yeah. abroad. Journalists, I mean, this was quite the step to detain a U.S. journalist in Russia. I mean, I, I was warned uh, in Moscow by diplomats that the British government, for instance, doesn't negotiate for hostages. I mean, obviously, they probably do, but 
you know, they were told that there wouldn't be the enthusiasm, perhaps, for a, um, an exchange of prisoners with Russia if a British citizen were to... Were to so, wait, was that directed at yeah. you, meaning like they were telling you? Yes, or? That, well, they were just telling careful, me in general, but right? I mean, obviously wow. it would have applied to me as well because I'm British. Yeah. Oh, okay, let's talk about Alexei Navalny, um, who is the opposition leader, who, of course, is in prison and just subjected to awful treatment. So what's the latest? Uh, I mean, he's in a terrible, terrible state. He's in, he's, he's in prison for 11 and a half years. Of course, he was poisoned with, you know, uh, you know a nerve agent. Terrible. He recovered from that. He came back to Russia and he was arrested and put in prison for, I think, a total of 11 and a half years. He's serving a sentence now on various uh, charges. Um, there are more criminal cases against him. Um, and, he, and his condition inside prison as well is, is really awful. I mean, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Moscow, his team were talking about how they believed he may have been poisoned again because he had constant sickness and illness, which indicated sort of, you know, a slow poisoning uh, to, to slowly get rid of him. And it, it, it's just really illustrative of the brutality in, in Russia that you know, not only did they try to poison this person, then put him in prison, uh, but even once behind bars, these people are constantly pressured. Um, and you know, he's got another case against him as well. He got into a fight, apparently, into his, in his prison cell, and he's being charged with that. Could be another five years. I was also reading that, you know, he can't trust what he's eating. When they present him with food, yeah. because either it will be poisoned or it's um, just sort of um, rancid. And so he's not getting enough food. I mean, it's bad on every single level. It, it, it's, it's not going to be great for him food-wise or in any other way. In fact, I think we spoke, CNN spoke to his daughter, who's 22 years old. Yeah, she mentioned she studied that. in America, yeah. yeah she mentioned uh, Dasha, Dasha Navalny. Um, take a listen to what she had to say. He is now illegally limited to the amount of food that he can purchase in the canteen, which, is, which doesn't seem like this big of a problem, but the food in the Russian prison system was bad. And my dad has had some problems with um, losing weight. And now the the situation has gotten so ridiculous that he buys the food, which is, you know, oats. It's nothing, it's nothing luxurious. And he bites the oats. The oats are brought to him, shown to him, and then are just destroyed. So he can't eat. Awful. Ugh. Just awful. It's a terrible, isn't it? And, and, and it's, it's Navalny. Uh, there's, there's somebody else called Vladimir Karamurza as well in, in prison. And you just have to be so concerned that these people, these you know, big democratic hopes, really, the big critics of Putin may well not last their prison sentence. Do you ever, do you ever see a situation where the U.S. will get involved and try to swap someone for Navalny to get? Uh, is that, is, I mean, is that even a possibility? I never say never. Never say never, right? But, I mean, I can't imagine the Russians being very enthusiastic. Right. About, I mean, they really, really, I mean, they really, really hate him. They, they well, want to keep him. They want to close him down. What's interesting is his daughter said when talking to Jim Shudo earlier is that the best thing she can do, the best thing that he needs right now is international attention. And, and I wondered about that in terms of what that could actually bring about despite the, you know, despite all of us just knowing the, the pure horror that he's going through. One thing I wondered is just how different that judicial system is. I mean, we get these sort of glimpses into the, the Russian legal system when, you know, we have cases like Brittany Griner, obviously Evan Gershkovich, but can you speak a little bit to just how different that judicial system really is? Because his daughter was talking about that earlier too and I just thought it was um, really shocking. Well I think the judicial system is not something you'd recognize in this country as being particularly just. I mean 99% of all cases that go to court in Russia 
they're, they're a guilty verdict. You know, people, people are just not found not guilty. Once you're in court, that's it. You're, you're, you're done for. And with people like Alexei Navalny and, and other critics of the Kremlin, they want to close them down. They want to silence them. And so they're doing everything they can to put pressure on them and to keep them in prison under lock and key for as long as possible. I mean, they're not, they're not going to be getting out any time. I mean, and it, does, is there any hope for Navalny? Like, did, does he ever get out? I mean, if, if he's getting into fights, or, I mean, they could be setting him up inside. So yeah. what yeah. hope is there? It, well, there's, there's, you know, there's always hope, I suppose, isn't there? Well, yeah. he has. Hope. He's no just an incredible. He's an incredible human being, as we know. We've we've um, covered, obviously, in a special on CNN. But just his fortitude is extraordinary. I'm just always struck, yeah. you know, like the fact that he went back. He knew what was going to happen, yes. and that scene where he goes back and he's met at the airport, and yeah. he knew it. I know because he believes in that cause so strongly. Extraordinary, you know. and I, I just want to say one thing: extraordinary for every everybody who stands up to the Kremlin given the risks, uh, given that they will lock you away and they will ruin your life if you do that, I think is an extraordinary act of bravery. Matthew, thank you for all of that. Really interesting to hear about it. Um, Okay, meanwhile, back here, there's supposed to be a vote on the debt ceiling tomorrow, but is that really going to happen? Rahel has got the details on the debt ceiling and why all of us should care what's going to happen tomorrow. Next, okay. (laughs) She's going to tell you individually, yes. And Shimon, who has no idea why to care. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy wants to pass a debt limit bill tomorrow, but he may not have the votes. The proposed bill would limit growth in government spending, it would block student loan forgiveness, it would rescind funding for the IRS, and introduce tougher requirements for Medicaid. Rahel has been following this story for us. So, Rahel, you know, I think that some people can, because they often have this debt ceiling fight, it can feel like dysfunctional politics, politics as usual. But you're saying that it has real implications for every one of us and everyone watching. Yeah, I'm going to go with option D. It's all of those things, <laughs> right? I mean, yes. I mean, the reality is the closer we get to this X state, essentially the date that the Treasury Department can no longer use the creative accounting measures, essentially they've been using since January, the closer we get to that date, the more likely it is that we will all feel it in some way. Think the market's tumbling. So, you know, if you have money invested in your 401k, think, you know, think about that impact. Think about borrowing costs going up for mortgages, for uh, student loans, which is really controversial right now. But that would also have an impact there. We could also start to see uh, joblessness, right? It certainly increases the risk of a recession. And so what would it, it would likely create is the beginning of a chain of reactions that would be damaging, to say the least. Every economist I talk to on this story, and I've been covering it since January, essentially, but every economist I talk to, every econ professor I talk to, they all say the same exact thing, which is it would be damaging, it would be catastrophic, it would be uh, destructive, but that's why it won't happen, because every politician knows that. But we'll see. But they do always play chicken, right? I was going to say, they're going to wait until the last minute. I mean, this is the pressure that that President Biden is facing, is he has stood firm on saying that he is not going to budge. He's not going to negotiate on this. But even Democrats are getting nervous and wondering, well, shouldn't we come to the table at this point? As yeah, this I think Senator Manchin said it. Approaches. You have to negotiate. Exactly. Yeah. And look, I mean, this is, I've talked to White House officials about this, and they punt to uh, Kevin McCarthy, and they say, well, if he can't even coalesce his own uh, right. party around this, then why should we wade into this? Like, mm-hmm. and, and we're seeing that play out in real time. I mean, he ha- can only afford to, 
to lose four votes. He's already had four Republicans publicly, at least, say that they don't plan to vote. And he's already signaled that they may not vote tomorrow. It yeah. could happen at some I think other Matt Gaetz point. Gates turnout. Just had <laughs> and Matt Gates on uh, an hour or two ago who talked about that very thing. So let's listen to that. Speaker McCarthy can lose four. Right now, how many holdouts are there, yourself included? Twice that. So I do not expect that there will be a vote as planned tomorrow on the McCarthy debt limit increase. I think there are still a few details we have to work out on work requirements, on some of the Green New Deal tax credits that uh, we would like to see repealed. And there's uh, some disagreement in our conference about that. And if we're able to get that done, uh, I don't think it'll be tomorrow. I think that there's still some time for the cement to dry. So then what happens yeah. if they don't get it done tomorrow? Well, McCarthy's already signaling that, right, by saying that he's open to it continuing throughout the week. But look, I mean, there is an interesting dynamic at play here because should they pass this, what does the White House do? At this point, Biden has already said and threatened that he would veto this proposal. Of course, just given what we heard there from Gates and from other Republicans, the proposal may look a little different. The legislation may look a little different if it gets to the finish line, when it gets to the finish line. And so then it becomes, does the White House come to the table? If President Biden talks with uh, House Leader McCarthy, is it considered or framed as a negotiation? Is it the two of them just talking it through? Remember, they haven't met face-to-face since February. So this is really all coming to a head, and it really is going to come down to these two leaders potentially having to talk to one another and sort out how they avoid the default that economists are really nervous about. Right. But then the other thing is, this, does this in some ways show, I don't know, the, the chaos with the Republicans? You know, you have Matt Gates, who's really becoming this figurehead and sort of this disruptor of what the speaker is trying to do. And, you know, I kind of wonder, like, is this what Biden wants, right? Kind of to show this kind of they're not organized, they can't, they can't get it together, and what role that's playing perhaps uh, in all of this. Because, I don't know, what, did, what are they going to do in the end if they can't come to an agreement? I mean, look, it wasn't that long ago when McCarthy had multiple votes just to become right. the speaker. So it was clear from the beginning that these factions were going to come up. And again, when you hear from the White House podium, they do punt to Republicans, and they, have, they say, you have to sort out how you're going to proceed before you come to us and point the finger at us because they already presented their budget. Um, Matthew, how does this play overseas? Does it? Are people aware of this kind of dysfunction? Well, I'm not entirely sure that everybody in America understands the consequences of what happens if you don't reach uh, an agreement on this. And certainly overseas, I've lost count of the number of times as well we've sort of been in this position and I've watched from afar as the debt ceiling plan is not reached or as a deal at the last minute. But I mean, we're talking about a sovereign debt default, aren't we? We're talking about a massive stock market crash. We're talking about a spike in unemployment. We're talking about you know, financial Armageddon if, if this happens. And I think what's worrying when you, when you read a bit about it and when you understand it is that how frequent America comes to this crisis yeah. situation. It's happening all the, all the time which is, you know, really kind of scary when you think of the global economy and how fragile it is and what could happen if it goes wrong. Yeah, it's a chicken. Matthew makes a great point there when he said the global economy. We like to think sometimes in our in our world here in the U.S. that it's, you know, it's, it's just U.S.-centric, but this would have impacts beyond our well, it's borders. It's the biggest this economy in the have, world, right? Exactly. This would have impacts around the world. All right, well... 
We're, we've been warned. Thank you very much. No. Yeah, exactly. So President Biden has launched his re-election campaign, making it clear that in next year's election, he's going to take aim at what he calls MAGA extremists. So Priscilla has all the details next. <laughs> President Biden formally announcing his bid for re-election today. In his video announcement, Biden made it clear that he will still fight what he calls MAGA extremism. Around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you paid for your entire life while cutting taxes for the very wealthy, dictating what health care decisions women can make, banning books and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. Okay, Priscilla's covering this for us. Okay, so Priscilla, his first message is sort of focused on what he thinks the evils of MAGA extremism are. Is that going to be his ongoing message for the next year, or is this just the opening salvo? It's a continuation, really. I mean, if you go and look back at his video from 2020, he was talking about the battle for the soul of the nation. And that to this video today was an extension of that. So, and, and it's key that he also started with January 6th. I mean, he's making it quite clear. He is running against former President Donald Trump. And when you go to his events, he talks about the MAGA Republicans. He talks about, you know, this is the Republican Party that is not one that looks like that of your father or your grandfather. So these are themes that have been coming up, and it's clear that that's what he's leaning into. Now, this is a message that we're going to see come up for the foreseeable going into the election, but at a wider scale. So we now know that they have the first TV ad buy that will start tomorrow in battleground states. This will be sort of a pivotal moment as they sort of broaden out that message. We also know that throughout the day, President Biden was talking to Democratic governors, uh, talking about his campaign message. His advisors were talking to key parts of the coalition and voting blocs, women, Latinos, um, to, you know, get them sort of excited about this bid. And of course, as we talked about last night, the White House press secretary in the meantime was fielding questions about his age, <laughs> because we've been talking now for some time that it was he's already an old president. He's going to be by the end of the second term, even older. And so the White House press secretary was talking about this today, too, uh, because she was asked about it. And, you know, her message was people said that in 2020. And look where we are now. Um, she also said she wasn't sure if he was going to complete. Right. Like, or what did she say? She caused some controversy today. Oh, she because, did. Well, did she, she it was in response to the fact someone asked if he was going to finish. His, ter- his eight years. The second term, yeah. Yeah, the second term. And I think, I don't exactly remember, but she sort of said, well, I kind of sort of hinted, well, I don't know, I don't want to get into it. And so, you know, of course, obviously people felt that she should have said, well, yes, that's his intention. She later explained herself to say, look, I am trying to stay out of the campaign is the campaign. Uh, but obviously then she said, of course, he's going to finish his term if he was elected again. Yeah. So she already kind of, I think the messaging there was a little strange and kind of stepped in it a, a little bit. Um, yeah, she said she didn't want to get ahead of it. Yeah. And that she and this is sort of the tricky part of an incumbency and running for reelect is that we get into this territory where the White House is fielding questions. They're punting over to the campaign when it has to do with the campaign. So we're we, we started to see the beginning of that. But we should also know where Vice President Kamala Harris was today. She's featured prominently in that video. There was questions about whether she was going to be the running mate. Uh, she certainly is. And she was at a 
uh, event on reproductive freedom uh, and protecting the rights of women. And so these are all themes we saw in the video, and they came to life all on the same day as President Biden talked to uh, union members as she was out talking about reproductive freedom and democracy. Okay, let's listen, let's listen to that for one second. Fundamental freedoms are under attack in our country today, and it is the tradition of this university, and dare I say the tradition of our country, to fight for freedom, to fight for rights, to fight for the ability of all people to be who they are and make decisions about their own lives and their bodies. So will we see her deployed much more now for the next, you know, campaign season? I think so. And we've already seen some of that. I mean, outside of this, if you just looked a few weeks ago when we saw the situation play out in Tennessee with the lawmakers who were booted off given their protest on gun reform, yeah, she was she, she was there. She, she was, was it, yeah. she didn't have public events she brought that a lot day. Of energy. I think so yeah. many people commented on that speech and how energized she was. And I wonder if this campaign ad and the way she's featured in it so prominently, if that gives her a newfound voice, perhaps some energy. Um, the other thing, though, in watching that campaign ad and, I've, and his announcement, I, sh- I should say, I'm just struck a little bit by the way it opens and in terms of fear, right? Like, do you want to go back to this time uh, of this chaos and be afraid, sort of, um, and that opening shot of January 6th? Yeah, Rahel, um, I can't help but notice your eyes. <laughs> well, I mean, there was this, this RNC ad that came out today mm-hmm. as well that used AI that you want to talk about generating fear. Yeah, that's what fear. I'm saying. It's, I mean, that was a Because, you know, that's really what Trump is going to do, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's sort of crime and border and fear, fear, fear. Right. And then are you going to have these two campaigns that are going to sort of say, you know, you could either be afraid of going back to this or be afraid of this? There's two visions of the country that they're each trying to project. But that ad that you're referring to, I think we have a clip of it and we should play it because So it this is the, plays, the RNC. This is the and RNC. they used artificial intelligence to create their ad. That's interesting. Let's just it, let's we should, we should watch, watch it for a moment yeah. and see what that looks like. This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. Border agents were overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening. Officials closed the city of San Francisco this morning, citing the escalating crime and fentanyl crisis. Who's in charge here? It feels like the train is coming off the tracks. What part of that is artificial intelligence? So if you notice on the upper left-hand side, it said built entirely by AI in the small white font. And this is probably the most explicit use of AI for political reasons that we have seen so far. And strategists have been saying we will likely see more of this. And it's sort of created this dystopian view of what could happen if Biden were to have a second term by catching on all the themes that we talk about, crime, the border uh, and the economy. What was interesting, what struck me is I had just a few days ago been sitting across from the Homeland Security Secretary who was saying he was so concerned about where AI was heading uh, because of, you know, because people may mistake it for misinformation, because of the way that it can be exploited. And so this is a concern already in the federal government. And to see it used in this way really brought that to life. No, it's here. It's here. It's here. Matthew, what are your thoughts on as you watch this? It's scary, isn't it? It's scary to see how the American political debate is all based on either fear of going back or fear of the future 
under, under the opposition. Um, or on this sort of culture war issue as well, this issue, I mean, Kamala Harris was, was talking about abortion, right? Mm-hmm. She was talking about, about that. And it's, it's extraordinary as an outsider to sort of see how um, you know, abortion is such... It's, it's purely political debate here, whereas, you know, if anything, it's an ethical debate about whether you think the right of life should be enshrined in the Constitution or not. Um, but it's also a practical debate. And it struck me when I was listening to her speak... I've covered a couple of countries that have, you know, eased their abortion laws. In Ireland, I was there when they did that. In Portugal, many years ago, when they legalised abortion there as well. And they did it for practical reasons. You see, it's, if you cut through all the ethics of it, and, and you're never going to convince, you're never going to bridge that divide, for instance, about whether it's right or not. Uh, it's a practical um, argument, uh, because if you ban abortions... Um, or you make it not possible for people to legally get abortions, they still get them. They just get them illegally, and so people die. Yeah. And so it's, I, I, I don't like the fact that, you know, it, it is... I mean, dystopian was the word I was going to use, but you stole it from me. That's, you know, <laughs> um, with abortion, I mean, it's just... It's, this is going to be a key argument of this, of well, this election, right? I, I mean, it's, it's incredible? kind of incredible, right, that, to think that this is still... So much at the forefront. Yeah. Not of just it's interesting what yeah. Allison ahead, said when she asked, well, what part of this was AI? That's the point, right? I mean, the Washington yeah. Post cited a source saying that he believes the company that's behind this is the same company that uh, posted those photos, for example, Pope Francis with a, yeah. the white puffer coat, which, you know, is sort of a funny <laughs> example. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, who could tell that that wasn't a real right. thing? And that's the scary part. It's very scary. It is yeah. very scary. because didn't realize that of, wasn't a real thing. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I just first, thought it was you didn't very But look, it's also the, yeah, the like, future. You just thought the yes. Pope was like... It's here. It's I, here. I, I, I cool Pope. <laughs> All right, yeah. guys, we'll keep talking, uh, but I have to get to this because security at an elementary school in Florida opened a second grader's backpack and discovered a loaded gun. Shimon's been following this and lots of other stories about the saturation of guns in America, so we'll get to that next. Police arresting a Florida dad who's now facing charges after security found a gun in his second grader's backpack at school. The father told police that he put the gun in his student's backpack by mistake. This is the same school district as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where a school shooter killed 17 people. Shimon, um, how did the father mistakenly put a gun in his second grader's backpack? I have no idea. You know, it's it's not entirely clear, but you know, sadly, this is not uncommon. This happens uh, where parents uh, or you know of kids and, and winds up in the wrong bag. Perhaps they think they're putting it in their bag, and then it goes into the kid's bag. It's just hard to think that someone would be so careless uh, with a gun, especially when you're living in a house with kids. It's not uncommon. Unfortunately, how many times have we seen kids shoot themselves, you know, with guns that are just laying around homes? Um, the other thing, they found two more guns in, in his car. And so he's been arrested. The thing is, this this caused quite a scare there. I mean, the school went into lockdown. Police surrounded the entire area. They had to evacuate. They had to tell other parents this was happening. So, yeah, I mean, this didn't only affect one person. I mean, this affected an entire 
school district, an yeah. entire school campus. And think about just how on edge people are right now in this country. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Even a scare. This was this wasn't anything. This wasn't Correct. shots fired. This wasn't an act of shooting. Just a scare. And everything has to go into lockdown, and it affects all the kids, as you say, and how nerve wracking. And not long ago, there was a six year old who shot his right. teacher. That's right. In Virginia. Yeah. I mean, you can't take chances anywhere now, right? In any school, elementary school, junior high school, high school, college, like anytime there's any sound of someone possibly having a gun, that's it. You know, it's chaos. And it's just a sad state of affairs that, we're, that we live in. Um, and what's been happening in Uvalde? Because you just, did you just spend so a So we were just there uh, last week and we were working on a documentary that, that's going to come out. And But last week, the families gathered at the state capitol in Texas. They're trying to get gun legislation passed. And obviously it's Texas. It's not going to happen. But what's really sad is that these parents had to spend 13 hours waiting to testify uh, before this committee. Um, and finally, they did get the opportunity close to midnight to testify. And, and it was just grueling, just awful. You can imagine the parents of these kids testifying. But, you know, this is the thing that we're seeing across the country, states on the state level, where victims of crime are trying to get some kind of legislation passed. You know, today in Washington state, you know, Governor Jay Inslee signed a new legislation where they're banning AR-15s. There's a 10-day waiting period now. I mean, this is significant. The the waiting period, you know, banning AR-15s, fine. Uh, But, you know, even this 10-day waiting period is significant because it's something certainly that may have prevented what we saw happen in Louisville. Absolutely. Right? I mean, a waiting um, period has, they. I think there's demonstrable proof that waiting period, in the states that have waiting periods, they have fewer of these. Because sometimes what happens is people are sadly just having a bad day or like they're just feeling a certain way and they just go, they snap and they go in. It's so easy to buy these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Matthew, I was just I mean, going to ask you because this is such an American problem. It's a uniquely American problem. We have more guns here than we have people. I think 393 million guns in private use at the last count. And so whenever I talk to people yeah. from another country, they say, what, why do you have school shootings? Yeah. What, what is happening? They can't understand it. And I have no, of course, well, explanation. I, I, for that. I'm just fascinated listening to you guys talk about yeah, how it happens so often that you put a gun in. Well, your like you have poisonings second. to worry about. You know, we have. You know, well, we have good I mean, guns yeah, to worry about. It's a dangerous uh, place. But I, I tell you, I, I remember very well 2012 and and the, and the Sandy Hook um, killing and, and the killing the killings there. Uh, Twenty children, um, I think it was, all six and seven years old, and it was the same age as my daughter. And so I, I remember thinking, oh my god, you know, surely this is the moment no. that America acts against weapons, because frankly. You know, my view then and, now, and still now is that you know, if, you, if you don't ban guns, regardless of the constitutional right, when your children are being massacred in their classroom, you know, you're never going to ban guns, frankly, because that's, if you cross that red line, I mean, what, what else, what, what other outrage could there be? I mean, we're seeing all these people being shot when they're going into the wrong house yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But or that's the wrong driveway. Or... The fact is they're just, you know, th- there's two issues going on, right? So you have the assault rifles and, the, you know, the ban on that. But then the other part of it is that there are just too many illegal guns, handguns on the street. And, and that's what's going on, too, in some, in some of these instances. You know, the everyday crime that we don't necessarily cover, yeah. people that are shot, I mean, several, dozens of people a day are getting shot yeah. and killed here in this But, country. I mean, because of our Constitution, there'll never be a ban on guns. No, I understand. I understand that.
Yeah. No, no, also the White and that House, means these tragedies are going to be well, I mean, a, a fact of life. Yeah, qu- very quickly. Well, um, I was, was going to say, if you look at the White House statements alone, you start to see the evolution to once again. That is in every statement now. And the, that is what we are seeing as a response to these incidents. And it really does speak to the state of affairs that they are acknowledging we are here again almost on a weekly basis. Yeah. But to your point, Shimon, I think the, there's two parts of this, right? There's the mass shootings that they're responding to and asking Congress to, you know, move on reform. And then there are people that have a gun legally and someone goes in their driveway. And what does that say about the state of the country? Well, absolutely. And how I mean, that's, do you that's, regulate that's what we're that? wrestling with lately. Yeah. Very complicated um, issue. And guys, I have to go. Rahel, I owe you one. So, okay, oh, very good. Right I after think this she'll break. be back, right? No, no, we have another segment oh, right oh. after this segment for whatever uh, you wanted to bring up. So up next, we do have On the Lookout. Our reporters are going to tell us the stories they're looking out for on the horizon. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back with our fabulous panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Priscilla, what are you looking for this week? Sticking to the theme of the week with the announcement of the campaign, money, donors, fundraising. What does that look like? How does that take shape? That was one of the big pushes to launch the campaign and do it soon so they can build that entire operation and get that going. They know it's a grueling few months in, ahead, and so they're going to want to shore up as many funds as they can to support this campaign. And we know, too, or at least we expect, that President Biden will have donors and fundraisers in Washington later this week. So it really speaks to them really accelerating all of those efforts for a busy 2024 campaign. So that's what I'm keeping an eye out for. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Matthew? I I wonder how Ukraine is going to play into this early stages of the presidential campaign. I'm certainly going to be watching what happens in Ukraine. As I mentioned to you last night, there's the the start, we think, of a long heralded uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive in Ukraine. We're watching that. As that builds... To what extent will the United States give even more weapons to that? Because you're also saying there's training going on. Well, there's been training going on for for a while. A couple of uh, Ukrainian pilots have been trained on on F-16s. That operation may step up. They haven't agreed to give F-16s to Ukraine yet, but obviously the pressure is on. Ukraine really wants those planes uh, to strike at at, at Russian forces. And, you know, in the end, they could well get them. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Rahel. Uh, Earnings season rolls on, and it's a really big week for tech earnings. So tomorrow we'll hear from uh, Meta when they report after the bell. Meta's always really interesting because it's it's Meta, it's Facebook. They've also been spending a lot of money on the Metaverse. And so that'll be interesting. But then Thursday we hear from Amazon. And Amazon is especially interesting because Amazon is obviously a massive company. It has its cloud computing business, but it's also what's happening with e-commerce. The last time we heard from the company, they reported that consumers were starting to pull back. Of course, that is something that we focus on uh, quite a bit as we try to read the tea leaves and understand what's happening with consumers. Are they still spending? Are they pulling back on discretionary items and what that means in terms of the larger economy? So uh, Amazon is certainly something that'll get a lot of attention on Thursday. Okay, Shimon? So I'm watching uh, Hunter Biden. Uh, He's expected to be in court on Monday. A judge there uh, has ordered him to appear at a court there. It's over a paternity case. That's interesting to me because it's different than the other investigations. 100%. This is completely different. It's a paternity case. It's a paternity case, and he's been paying child support. But something's going on, and the mother of this kid uh, wants him there. She wants him in court, and she told the judge that he's playing games and that— Oops, sorry about that. That she wants him jailed. Uh, so the judge there has ordered him to appear. And so 
We'll see if he shows up and what, you know, what's going to happen there. But certainly right now, he's expected to appear at this courtroom in, uh, in Arkansas on Monday. So it certainly is going to be interesting. Okay, thank you all for those previews. Great to have you guys tonight. Thanks for all the stories. Really fun. And uh, tomorrow on CNN This Morning, Poppy's wide-ranging interview with Kim Kardashian. What she has to say about her journey to becoming a lawyer, motherhood, and what she's asking for from the Biden White House. Thanks for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.